right, guys, I want to do at least a couple entertainment theme podcasts because I know we all care about that. And my first topic is going to be Game of Thrones. So here we go. Um, I really like listening to fan theories on the internet. And the best one is this. Um, what if Game of Thrones isn't fantasy? What if it's science fiction? And um, the best theory I've heard about this is there's this guy on YouTube that's read all 40 of George R. R. Martin, the author's other novels. And the interesting thing is that all of them are sci-fi. None of them are fantasy. And a lot of them take place in the same universe. Maybe all of them, but we know like half of them explicitly take place in what he calls his Thousand Worlds universe, which is this shared universe where, um, you know, humanity is exploring the stars. And in a couple of these books, humanity has undergone something called an interregnum. And an interregnum is a period of time where humanity has lost space travel and gone into a dark ages. And so that's how uh, Game of Thrones could be science fiction. And so the next question is, well, how did they get to a dark ages and lose space travel? And that is a little bit obvious once you think about it. We know that long ago they experienced a long winter and it happens, it takes generations, um, which means many decades. Well, this guy points out, you need not have an alien planet to have a long winter. It could happen here. It's called nuclear winter. And nuclear winter is when all this ash and soot from a nuclear explosion or enough of them ends up in the atmosphere. It blocks out the sun and it makes everything hot or I'm sorry, cold. Um, so that, that could, that's one possible explanation. Another thing is there's all of this, uh, architecture that they don't know how to build. And, um, the most obvious example is the wall. But the wall isn't the only example. A lot of the castles that they have, um, somebody mentions that the castle that the Fat King is from, Robert Baratheon from season one, his castle has these really smooth walls that are curved that have no uh, crevices between the stones. And they mentioned that nobody knows how to build that anymore. Also, all of the caverns um, all, sorry, all of the castles have these deep caverns. I noticed it before I even heard this theory. It almost seems like George R. R. Martin goes out of his way to tell you that every castle they visit, which is a lot, has really deep dungeons and dungeons below that. Um, and it's like you're reading this and every time it says, and Theon knew that the dungeons below were just the first layer and there were more below. And you keep thinking, oh, he's going to take us down there soon. Um, but he never does, which makes you feel like, what the, why the hell is he mentioning these? Well, that could be why. A lot of the castles are carved out of the side of mountains is another thing. So like the Aerie, which is where um, Robin is from, uh, the, the, the place with the sky jail that Tyrion was held, but also Casterly Rock, um, Tyrion's family home that we haven't seen yet that is built out of a mountain. So there's all this technology. And then the caverns, oh, and the reason the caverns are important is they would allow you to survive a nuclear winter. Where would you live? You'd live in bunkers. Oh, the Stark, Starks in Winterfell, the Winterfell family home of the Starks has all these crypts that go deep and deep and they say you'll get lost and nobody knows all the ways. Um, So, and it also makes sense because in his other books, there's, like I said, there's a couple other books where people survive these cataclysms. The way they do it is by living underground. 
There's one book called Dark Dark Were the Tunnels. They have really cool names, by the way. So here's another thing. So then people say, what are you talking about? It's sci-fi. There's magic. Well, I noticed when reading it and when watching it, they're actually pretty coy about the magic. They don't show a lot of it. Um, the, the best example, like Melisandre says she can use potions and stuff. Um, we don't see quite as much magic in the books, I think, as we do in the show. But um, the biggest example people give is, well, what about the shadow baby? And the shadow baby is that thing that Melisandre birthed the red priest she birthed it through her legs well you know she birthed it like any other baby but it it came out and it was just a lot of shadow coming out of between her legs and it went through that fence and it killed Renly which um, allowed Stannis to um, have a claim to the throne and a lot of people think oh well that's obvious magic well here's the thing uh, Brienne who's with Renly and Colin at the, at the time she says that the shadow looked like Stannis. And Stannis was having a dream during the time his brother was killed. And this is important because... So basically what we think is, or what a lot of people think, is psychic powers. And um, because it's psychic powers are a theme in a lot of his other books. And so is telekinesis. Kind of trippy. Um, it doesn't, it's not required for you to enjoy the books. But it's still kind of fun to think that this might be, there might be this interpretation. Um, here's another one. Uh, everybody knows that the faceless men that Arya is training with, those assassins, that they can change their face to look like other people. But in the books, at least, they haven't really explained how they do that, that I recall. Um, and the idea, what if they're not changing their face at all? What if it's just psychic ability that makes you think that they've changed their face? And to be honest, that would make a lot more sense than that Arya can just create awesome masks. So then the guy got a bunch of interviews with George R. R. Martin because other people have thought of this too. And they asked him, um, do you, is this, there's a video interview where they ask him, is, is it sci-fi sci or is it fantasy? And he says, you know, early on I thought about doing that as I was writing it, but I've decided that it's fantasy. But then there's another video interview where he's showing some toys of the, the Game of Thrones toys, or it might be toys from another franchise. He's in a store with one of the actresses from Game of Thrones, and he looks at the dragon and he goes, oh, this is stupid. And she says, why? And he says, well, um, my dragons have two legs because there's no example in nature of a quadruped animal having wings. And he says, I'm, I'm a... Uh, it's fantasy, but I'm a sci-fi guy. There's got to be a reason for everything. And so I think that what's probably happened is, as he was writing it, as he was starting it in particular, there he was lacing in all of these science fiction explanations for stuff that could happen, but he's never going to have them like find a ray gun. And he's also integrating it with his other books, by the way. Like I don't think it's just coincidence. I think it's that... Um, because there's other things in his other books, like the children of the forest. Um, there's an alien race that corresponds exactly like them, um, called the old Harangans. And you never get to see them in his other books because they've been defeated by humanity already. But it's said that they were childlike, had psychic powers and retreated underground. And that's basically what happened. 
uh, with what the children of the forest are. And we said that they were almost wiped out when we destroyed their planet. But during that war, we also lost old earth. So it's likely that Game of Thrones, in his mind, he set it up where it could very reasonably be uh, old Haranga or old earth. Um, and if you look at the map of Game of Thrones, it's probably not a coincidence that it looks a lot like Europe. So where they're at, Westeros, you know, it could be Britain. And he says it's inspired by England. Um, but then also there's like a Mediterranean region. There's like a, you know, a Southern European coast. And there's even like an African area called Southeros that could correspond to Africa on a map. Going back to the show a little bit, I think one of the most... One of the biggest questions I have about the books, or I'm sorry, the show, other than how it ends, is what the heck were the children of the forest doing? Whose side are they really on? I think at this point they're probably on our side just because of what the show has said. But why did they want Bran to go up there so badly? What did he really learn? So people say, oh, well, he learned that Jon Snow is the king. But these people can send visions because they sent him visions. Uh, And so um, they sent him visions to get him up there. And when he was up there, if you remember, so the whole famous scene where, and this is spoiler territory, guys. uh, So please, if you haven't seen season six, don't listen to this. But the scene where Hodor is holding the door um, for the last time or whatever, uh, and they're in the tree. The, they know that the Night's King, the White Walkers, have surrounded them, but they're still inside of the dream. And which to me, if you're not trying to run away, it means that that dream must be pretty important. But we have no freaking clue and they haven't said yet what was so important about that last dream. If you remember, nothing special happened and they just sat there the whole time and watched it unmoving and the guy didn't want to leave and he didn't want to wake up. And what they watched was they watched Ned, uh, sorry, Bran's father, Ned, um, who, as he's going south to become uh, a ward of this other king in the areas where he was going to go live. And that's when he went and met uh, Kotlin, his wife, uh, and he went and met uh, Robert Baratheon, I think, around sometime in his youth. So I'm wondering, maybe, because we know Bran can affect the past, because that's how Hordor was created, intentionally or no. Is that guy trying to tell Bran he has to stop his father from going back in time so that maybe the War of the Kings never happens, and none of this stuff ever happens? I don't know. That might be a way that Game of Thrones ends. Here's another thing that I think is really neat about the show. Um, I was watching a video about Tyrion, and they bring up the point that in the books he's introduced or at least in the show he's introduced a lot differently than he is in the books in the show they introduce him in a brothel and he's drinking which granted he does do a lot of those things but in uh the books um they introduce him in the library which is also core to his character and yes he does drink a lot and but here's the thing about game of thrones everyone does and the reason that they're all drinking is because they're all having prophetic dreams. And I think that's a really interesting point. Um, All of the characters, like just so many characters have dreams that tell the future. And you could say, oh, well, it's fantasy. People can have dreams to tell the future. But we know 
it's not even up to interpretation. There's a character that can send dreams and it's that old man that lives with the children of the forest in the tree. And they even say they have dream walkers. The children of the forest have dream singers that can communicate and send each other dreams. So we know at least one party in this book series has these dreams. And this guy makes a good point. If you wanted to, um, if you wanted to control the future, then you could send someone a prophecy that they either want to have happen or prevent. And by doing what you, you could get them to do what you want some, some way like you know, through dreams, which is kind of what Inception is about. But the best example is he wants Bran to come see him. So he starts sending him dreams about following the Three-Eyed Raven, which is who he is in the book. They call him that. And sending him dreams about the tree. He gets to see it. And he through the dreams is how he decides he has to go up north. But all the other characters are having dreams too. Another really interesting example is this guy points out that before every um, major decision in Danny's life, uh, Daenerys, you show people often call her Khaleesi. She has a dream, and the dream which gives her strength. So it'll be like she's really afraid of something. That night she goes to bed, she has a dream, and she wakes up the next day with a strange strength. And so, uh, and a lot of times, the dreams will correlate with starlight. And there's a character that's associated with starlight named Quaith, and she's the character in season two that has this mask over her face that's like a wicker mask that tells Daenerys that she must go east to go west, must go north to go south, go back to go forward. Really cryptic. But it's thought, potentially, that she's sending Daenerys dreams to get her to do certain things because I'm going back and reading and let me tell you, the person that Danny is before she has these dreams, all these fears, is very different from the person that comes out of the other side of the dream. And sure enough, like the first Danny chapter, like she's really afraid about marrying Drogo and then she has this dream and it's like she stops talking about the fact that she's afraid and she gets married the next day. And the same thing I think with wanting to, you know, learn how to be a better lover in season one and stuff. So it's really interesting stuff, the use of dreams. Some other stuff I wish was not cut out and kind of relates to this dream theme um one of my favorite characters that i really wish we got to see was gonna what was gonna happen to him in the show is the shrouded lord and he's only in the books so far and he is the leader of the stone men and it's said that he can control them the stone men are those people with that skin disease that sir jorah gets and it makes you mindless it makes you um aggressive and they don't really tell us too much about them other than they live in old Valyria, which is the ruined place where Danny's, uh, you know, ancestors come from, the dragon people, the dragon riders. And this guy's said to control them. And there's also, uh, there's a lot of association between him and water. And we know that this guy that lives on these Southern Isles is assembling an army. Um, and he may be working with Euron, who's the new villain, kind of the new bad boy or Bolton of uh, the show. So it would have been really cool to see more of him because he can do some really cool stuff in the books. Uh, Tyrion is on his way to go see Danny. He's sent to go see Daenerys or Khaleesi by Varys, the bald guy. And it takes a long time, actually, in the book to do that. He has to do like a lot of sailing down rivers and stuff like that. Even before he meets Jorah, he's doing this on his own. Well, so Tyrion is going down this river, and he's talking with the ship, the crew of this ship he's on, 
and they're in this place that has old ruins and it's said that the stone men like to be around old ruins so they're they see them on the banks the river banks and um they uh they um he's talking to his shipmates and i think somehow maybe they ask him i can't remember exactly but he shouts into the distance what he's so upset about and he says i killed my father i killed tywin lannister and all of a sudden the book i can't remember it describes it really weird you don't know what's going on but it says all of a sudden it's like they've been teleported and Tyrion says the same bridge started coming up again and it's almost like you can hear a sound effect in your head um they start to pass a bridge that they've already passed a second time and when they do all of a sudden the stone men come up out of the water and grab them and pull Tyrion down and he blacks out but just before he blacks out he says he saw the face of his father and I think he says he saw it laughing at him and as we know he washes up on the shore and um the he's free he doesn't have the curse like Jorah does Jorah got it in the book but Tyrion doesn't have it well the really interesting thing about the shrouded lord is there's fan speculation about who he could be because obviously the title means nobody knows who he is well the best candidate so far is this guy named Jerrion Lannister he's Tyrion's uncle and he's Tywin Lannister's brother and the reason he's the best candidate is there's only, we don't know a lot about either person but there's three things we know about Jerrion Lannister one he likes old artifacts so the reason we don't see him in the books is that when he was a kid he said he was going to go to old Valyria and recover the family's Valyrian sword Valyria again is where the dragon riders are from and it's ruined um, and I'll get to why it was ruined in a second probably why um, and but he never returns from that so we know he sailed he went down there so we know that he likes ruins Tyrion says we also know he all Tyrion remembers of him as he was of good spirit and he liked to laugh and we know that he liked Tyrion well here are the things we know about the shrouded lord we know that he likes ruins because the stone men are always found near valuable ruins of ancient civilizations we know that he likes to laugh because it's said that he will grant the legend of him literally is if you he will grant you a boon if you can make him laugh and there's a suggestion that he might know Tyrion because the legend is that he can control the stone men they're not simply mindless they're being controlled and mind control whether it's magic or not through those dreams it's probably being used in the books and he can control whether or not they give people the curse or the disease so remember they grab Tyrion and pull him under after somebody shouts out I killed Tywin Lannister well if you're Jerrion Lannister somebody you hear somebody kill your brother you have your henchmen go get them but then he says he saw his father's face so maybe you know a brother's gonna look like his father and then he doesn't catch the disease and he's spared well he's spared because the third thing matches up which is that the shrouded lord may know Tyrion well anyway I just think that's really cool there's also a suggestion that he might be working with Dario a lot of people um, 
know who Dario is from the show. He's kind of like the the guy that um, Khaleesi, that's really into her that's younger. Um, but in the books, we're never quite sure about him. Danny knows that she should hate him because he's very violent and he's ruthless. And his philosophy is kill first, ask questions later. And Danny, when she's being herself, she's not that type of person. She's getting closer to being a ruthless person. But she's not, that's not really who she is by nature. There's an internal debate in the books what, how ruthless is she going to have to become. And maybe that's the point. Um, one of the. One of the ways I think things could end in Game of Thrones is um, I think there's a theme that uh, there's no just ruler. And in fact, Danny makes a lot of mistakes. They're more obvious in the book. But the fact that she crucifies those men, first of all, in some ways it's very spiteful. I know she was trying to send a warning, but she crucifies slave masters. Um, But it also turns the other cities against her, or at least it helps. They may have turned against her anyway, but it doesn't help things. Um, and then the other thing is, uh, her dragons are killing a lot of innocent people when they go feeding. It's more obvious in the books because people come there several times. First, it's a man comes to her and I think that it's his goats have been killed or cattle, but another time somebody comes to her and I think it's in the show. He, she brings out bones and she goes, are these, is that a sheep? And he says, no, it's my daughter. And so she's very upset about that and she's very conflicted she's not sure if um you know if if the dragons are really a good thing and if you think about it the dragons are kind of like the nuclear weapons of this world and they give someone ultimate control because her ancestors were able to take over all of westeros with just three dragons and like two thousand men or something ridiculously low and so i know in modern days we don't you know we like democracy we don't want somebody to have that much power um so and it's also kind of a theme of the books that none of these rulers are perfect. Nobody's truly good. I get suspicious anytime some are fully good. Nobody's fully good. And I and even the ones that are make plenty of mistakes. Rob makes mistakes. Tyrion makes mistakes. Catelyn makes mistakes. You know, Ned made mistakes. Um, and sometimes those mistakes hurt other people. And so I think there's a suspicion of power theme in the books. Um, and... Anytime somebody says Danny is fully good and she's the only one that has deserves to have the throne, I get suspicious. And I also think it's interesting that she's becoming more and more cold. I don't think she's all the way there yet by any means. And she could very well end the series as a good character. I think she probably will. But she's definitely being tempted by ruthlessness right now. Is she going to be, you know, it's the Machiavellian debate. It's better to be loved the prince the prince by machiavelli he he says it's better it is better to be loved than feared but since it's too hard to be loved it's better to be feared and i think she's facing that choice right now and i don't know which way it's going to go my guess is and i think these books george r, r. martin one of the reasons the sci-fi theory has merit is he has a quote where he says his favorite thing as a reader is to be surprised and so and and he says that he, he would like as an author to surprise people and I think that's part of why he's killed off so many characters when you least suspect, suspect it and so one way to end the books surprisingly would be you know if Danny I think maybe if she has to kill the dragons you know um, a friend of mine who's close to me noticed that the uh, the theme music for the dragons um, 
is kind of sad. If you listen to the soundtracks ever on, you know, Spotify, Apple Music, whatever, and listen to any of the songs that have dragon music or that appears when dragons appear on screen, it's epic, but it's it's kind of sad. So I think it could end up that way. I think John may also have to die. I think he may have to like broker a peace with the White Walkers. Um, and uh, I think it's probably going to be Sansa and Tyrion end up ruling. And there's a theme in George R. R. Martin books that in his books, a lot of times the characters that actually do survive are characters who, you know, they're not malicious. They're usually good. They're not malicious, but they are pragmatic. So they sometimes will play the game and they can be a little ruthless when they need to be. And I think we've seen that Sansa can be like that now. And we know Tyrion, you know, Tyrion's not opposed to throwing someone in a dungeon and throwing away the key, etc. Um, which he did with Pycelle. Um, one other thing that makes it really hard to predict, and then I'll go, this is the last Game of Thrones story or George R. R. Martin story I'll tell for now. Um, the first story, short story George R. R. Martin ever wrote or that was published is called The Hero. And it's really short, but I'll just sum it up for you. And to give you an idea of how, you know, crazy and unpredictable he is, um, it's about this guy. It's in that Thousand Worlds universe, and it's about a soldier. Soldier, um, you know, they talk about how he's a hero, and he wins all these wars for humanity against other alien races, or at least he, um, you know, he kills a lot of enemies. He's a very valuable soldier, and he does courageous things, and or rather, you know, bold and risky things, and um, there's actually some hinting that, you know, he's had to do some things he wasn't proud of, which makes a lot of sense because George R. R. Martin says the Vietnam War was very impactful on him. And it's part of why I think he has a suspicion of government. And it's part of why I think that he, um, you know, that he, uh, has these characters who are not never wholly good and who make all these mistakes but anyway so this guy may have uh, done some things like let's say killing native populations or innocent people um you know shooting first ask questions later who knows uh well it comes out that he's about to retire and in this world if you're a really good soldier you're able to retire to earth and it's a paradise planet and you get to live you know, if you distinguish yourself, you get to live in uh, abundance or affluence for the rest of your life. And so he's getting ready to go. I think he's doing a little soul searching during this story about, you know, he did what he had to do. Is he proud of it? No, but at least it's over. And he's being walked to the transporters and this officer starts talking and he's like, you know, we want to offer you, you know, we could really use a soldier like you. Um, you're, you know, you can help train people. We can offer you a variety of positions, etc. Is there anything we can do to keep you on? And he's like, um, no, I think I want to go. And the guy's like, okay, well, we'll be sorry to lose you. And, um, so he's getting on the transporter and, um, all of a sudden they're beaming him up and, uh, it gets, I think his belt gets really hot or contracts and there's a malfunction in the transporter and he dies. And that's the end of the story. That's just the end. And so there's this part of why I think Game of Thrones won't resolve. Is this sci-fi? Is this not? Some of it's open to interpretation. Um, Were they ever going to let him go? Is there a paradise planet at all? Or is that just a lie? 
did they kill him because he in particular knew too much about the things that humanity had to do in order to win these wars um, and then obviously the way they treat soldiers perhaps there's a little bit of a commentary there so it's a short short story but I think you can see another thing about these books that I've learned just from youtubers basically none of George R. R. Martin's stories ever end well I mean, ever. The hero usually dies. If they don't die, they're screwed over big time. The best that happens is maybe the, um, you know, a character who's one of those pragmatic characters. They don't get fully screwed, but they don't die, but they're not in a great position either. Maybe they have to live out their life on a, you know, really potentially their life on a secluded planet by themselves or stranded or something. So um, that happens. Now, it's feeling less... Uh, I was listening to an author of a Japanese story called Berserk, which is even darker than Game of Thrones. It's fantasy. I don't recommend it. It's disturbing. Um, I had to stop watching it. I think it's just like gratuitousness on a whole other level, and it just makes you feel bad. Um, but that guy says he's famous for being dark. And he had a quote that, you know, after a story this long, I just don't know if I have the heart to end it on a bad note. I don't think I could do that to readers. I think that George R. R. Martin, I think because it's a longer story, he could end it on a brighter note than his other stuff. But um, I think there'll still be some bittersweet. And I think that's good uh, for literary reasons. And I'll get to that uh, or I'll explain that now. I asked a UF English professor, um, I noticed one time, and I asked them, uh, why do all the best works of literature, why do they always seem to be so sad? And, you know, I think of like Hemingway, they're very uh, memorable, but they're very depressing. And she said, I don't know, I think that stories are more memorable and more lasting when they're bittersweet. That's what she brought to focus for me. They're more, they're not even necessarily more enjoyable, but you remember them more. And I think that that is why he'll end it. You know, it's not going to be all roses. Not that it has been so far, but that's why I don't think you'll see like John and Danny ruling in happiness. Um, you'll see maybe one of them. Um, <clears throat> and that kind of stuck with me for a while, you know, years go by. Um, and then I read something else and I think I finally figured out why bittersweet stories are so memorable and lasting. And it's this article about humans actually prefer when they experience not just one emotion, but a mix of emotions. It activates more dopamine because it activates more of your brain. So if you think about it, and it's probably not this rudimentary, but certain nerves or brain cells are, so rather, are associated with maybe experiencing sadness, and certain um, brain cells are maybe a little bit more experiencing pleasure and anticipation. Well, when all of those are active, it appears that maybe more dopamine is released, but it's more people rated as being more pleasurable. And so I think definitely, and the other thing is things that we remember correspond to stronger emotions. So if you can give somebody a variety of emotions and activate more emotions, maybe that makes it more memorable. Maybe that's why certain stories like that, you know, are taught for hundreds of years into the future. Um, and uh, I think that um, I th one big one, one last anecdote, I think Harry Potter would have been a lot better had it ended on that note. Um, I think, you know, there's a little soft spot I have for the idea of them all living into old age happily ever after. 
but I think, and a lot of people said, for it to be literary, Harry needs to die. And I think that, you know, I think it probably would have been a little bit more um, of a mature work of fiction had that happened. But, you know, she still did a good job. I didn't like the last, the ending of the last book that much. Um, another interesting thing before we go, um, J.K. Rowling has since said that she made a mistake and that she thinks that Harry and Hermione should have gotten together. And I think that that makes more sense because I think you can feel more chemistry between those two than maybe between Ron and Hermione, which is just a total, like, um, opposite story, but not even, I don't know, maybe they just didn't spend enough time on it. But anyway, got off topic. So that's, uh, podcast one about Game of Thrones. Oh, I did say I was going to mention why Valyria may have uh, been doomed. Uh, the place where the Dragon Riders came from, its they had to leave and they came to Westeros and took over because their own island um, was destroyed. And it's called the Doom of Valyria. Nobody knows why. Well, there's a really good fan theory I heard. So these dragons, well, volcanoes erupted. We know two things about that island. We know that volcanoes erupted causing the doom. And we know that dragons were there and they like to hang around around the volcanoes. We also know that there were mines and there were many slaves in those mines. And we know that the faceless men, the people that Arya learned assassin skills from, we learned that they learned to worship death because they come from those mines. So, and death was an escape for them. It was their only escape. So, um, it's thought that perhaps they found dragons or awoke dragons underneath of Valyria and they woke them knowingly in order to destroy the island and basically bring mercy to everyone, put them out of their misery. I think that that, I think that there's, and also the fact that Valyria is based on Atlantis. It's it's, that, you know, they have better technology. They have that Valyrian steel, um, that, that, can even fight walkers and it can't be broken and it's much lighter than other steel but um so anyway i just thought that was a cool aside i think that's another great fan theory all right i've talked your ear off about game of thrones i'll probably do you know we'll do more tech topics and i may do more entertainment maybe movie reviews next time all right guys uh or sometime in the future thanks a lot for listening as always i hope you enjoy these or just something fun i do um as things go i may improve things or they may stay the same i don't know all right bye